I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi listeners, it's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name and, as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello listeners, this is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Welcome to another Shakespeare Anyone mini-episode. In these mini-episodes, 
we'll be exploring topics that are related to Shakespeare but aren't necessarily connected to whatever play we've been discussing. And they're many because, well, they're shorter than our other episodes. They're like quartos if the regular episodes are folio editions. In today's episode, we'll cover the gunpowder plot. Let's set the scene for you. On November 4th, 1605, the day before King James was going to appear in person to open a new session of Parliament, officers of the Crown received an anonymous letter that uncovered a nefarious plot. At the scene of the plot, they discovered Guido, a.k.a. Guy, Fox, and a cellar that went under the Parliament House. In the cellar and hidden under a load of lumber and coal were barrels and barrels of gunpowder and iron bars. On his person, Guy Fox was carrying a watch, fuse, and tinder. He was arrested, and as he was viciously tortured, Fox revealed the names of his co-conspirators, who had been embittered by King James I's apparent unwillingness to extend tolerance to Roman Catholics. Those named were hunted down and either killed on the spot or hung, then drawn and quartered for their part in their treason. This failed plot to blow up Parliament and assassinate James is remembered as the Gunpowder Treason Plot, or the Jesuit Plot. And it is intense. But how did we get here? The main motivator behind this plot is religious freedom, which was quite a controversial topic at this point in English history. You see, tensions between Catholics and Protestants have been building and building throughout the last hundred years or so. Henry VIII broke from the Catholic Church in Rome in 1534 to create the Protestant Church of England for his own personal gains. Remember the intro series? Nevertheless, Protestantism became the religion of England and Catholics became marginalized. And although Henry's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, loosened the medieval punishments of her predecessor, Queen Mary, who was referred to so warmly as Bloody Mary, she was not exactly tolerant of the Catholics. One example of this intolerance by Elizabeth was a portion of the English Religious Settlement Act of 1558, which, though it did some good for religious practices, go back to the intro series for that, it also forced all English citizens to convert to Protestantism and attend a Protestant service every Sunday. And apparently, they were keeping track of attendance, and if you missed one too many services, you could be fined or sent to jail. This was a direct effort to steer Brits away from the Pope as their connection to God and towards the Church of England. Seriously, if you haven't listened to our intro series yet, pause this episode, listen to that, and then come back. We'll wait. Now, the Roman Catholic Church did not take the Settlement Act lightly. Pope Pius V excommunicated Elizabeth from the Catholic Church. In 1570, he issued a papal bull that encouraged all Catholics to depose the queen and no longer show loyalty to the English monarchy. He called her, quote, Elizabeth, the pretended queen of England and the servant of crime. Now the Catholics in England were seen as enemies. Horror and uneducated Brits promptly switched to Protestantism because they couldn't afford the fines, nor could they read Latin, the language of the Roman Catholic Church. But the educated upper class were a different story. Recusants, as they were called, were individuals who knowingly broke the law and continued to practice Catholicism because they still thought the Catholic Church was the true church, and this defiance was a quest for them to save their immortal souls. 
recusing Catholics began to hide priests in their homes, which was punishable by death. So, yeah, Catholics had to practice their religion in secret. Nice, Elizabeth. As Elizabeth, the heirless final Tudor monarch, saw the deterioration of her health around 1600, the Privy Council and other factions began advocating for different successors to the throne. As the son of Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was executed by Elizabeth, oh, and she's not the same Mary as Bloody Mary, don't get them confused. Her son, King James, was a strong contender for the crown. But Catholics favored alternatives to James, who was a Protestant. And yes, they were mostly Catholic alternatives. But James's claim to the throne was successful, and he ascended to the throne on March 24th, 1603. If you listened to our first episode on demonology, you already know that James was a Protestant king who was very intense about how great Protestantism was. While James cared more about hunting witches and partying than cracking down on Catholics practicing in private, that doesn't mean that English Catholics were entirely comfortable with his ascension to the throne after 70-plus years under the Protestant Queen Elizabeth I and her English Settlement Act. English Catholics waited to see how James would rule. Would he be fair to Catholics? Intolerant? Repeal Elizabeth's laws? Convert to Catholicism himself in honor of his mother, who was a Catholic? He was very vague about how he would handle the tension between Catholics and Protestants, which gave some Catholics confidence they needn't stress. What ended up happening was he kept his Protestant faith. And actually, he started his reign as a relatively tolerant king to his Catholic subjects. He was sort of a live and let live, but be quiet about it and don't break the law kind of king. One notable stance he took was, rather than punishing practicing Catholics with capital punishment, he merely exiled them, believing exile to be a better alternative. But that doesn't mean James trusted the Catholics. His paranoia surrounding assassination by Catholic factions grew quickly. But don't think James's nerves about assassination were in vain. Prior to his reign, many Protestant rulers in Europe had seen assassination attempts. Soon James's political writing was, quote, concerned with the threat of Catholic assassination and refutation of the Catholic argument that faith did not need to be kept with heretics, unquote. Nice, James. On top of that... English Protestants noticed that James, having halted collecting fines for skipping Protestant mass and raids on Catholic households, pressed James to be harsher on their Catholic brethren. Many Protestants believed that if the Catholics were not stamped out, they would spark an uprising. James was pressured to revert back to enforcing Elizabeth's harsh laws that treated Catholics like criminals. The Catholics felt betrayed by James, they felt he had given them hope, and now they were angry. And this leads us to the gunpowder plot. But who are our plotters? The most infamous is Guy Fawkes, who we mentioned earlier as being caught in the cellar amongst all the explosive paraphernalia. Not much is known about his childhood. He was born in 1570 into a mixed family. His father was Protestant and worked for the church, while his mother was Catholic. Years after his father died, his mother remarried a Catholic man and Guy was baptized. The family secretly practiced Catholicism in a community with a lot of recusant Catholics. He continued to practice Catholicism into his adulthood. After maybe getting married and maybe having a son, he left England for Flanders after continuous struggles for employment. 
While abroad, he fought with the Spanish in the Eighty-Year War against the Protestant Netherlands. But Guy Fawkes was not the ringleader of the plot. That would be Robert Catesby, who first began plotting in 1603 and recruited a man named Thomas Winter. Catesby and Winter wrote to friends in Spain and requested help, but their Spanish contacts did not want to get involved. They decided that if they want something to be done, they'd have to find support home in England. The two recruited John Wright and Thomas Percy, who then recruited Fox. In May of 1604, the men had their first meeting, in which they probably dined and drank together at the Duck and Drake Inn, Winter's usual residence while in London. They whispered around their table and swore an oath of secrecy. Following the meeting, they started to prep. Thomas Percy purchased land near the Palace of Westminster, and Fox was hired on as a footman with the pseudonym John Johnson. How original. To not raise suspicion. They purchased gunpowder in small quantities and disguised this purchase as a practical matter to defend themselves against pirates if they went overseas. Again, to not raise suspicion. Percy rented a cellar underneath the Palace of Westminster, claiming he was renting it to store firewood for his cousin, the Earl of Northumberland. The plot kept getting pushed back and, all the meanwhile, the conspirators grew in number from 5 to 13 men. Unfortunately for the original plotters, increasing the number of people involved also made it more likely for someone to blow the entire thing. And that's just what happened. On Saturday, October 26th, a servant handed Lord Monteagle a letter from an anonymous source which read, quote, My lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you as you tender your life to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this parliament, or though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow. Unquote. That letter was delivered to Robert Cecil, the spymaster and secretary of state to King James. Historians debate the identity of this anonymous author. It could have been any of the 13 conspirators. Others have suggested Lord Monteagle, a Catholic, wrote it after hearing of the plot. Lord Monteagle was rewarded £500 a year for his loyalty to the crown, which seems like reason enough to oust the plotters. Others believe it was Robert Cecil, the spymaster, who orchestrated the reveal to look like the hero. But on November 4th, 1605, royal guards searched the Palace of Westminster, and upon finding nothing, thought the letter was a hoax. Then someone mentioned there was a room in the cellar that was storing firewood that had not been checked yet. The guards headed downstairs to check it out. Now we are back at the scene of the crime. Fox was immediately arrested after the royal guards discovered the gunpowder and matches. King James himself interviewed Fox to ask if he regretted anything. After all, it was a ruthless plan that would have killed so many people, including children present at Parliament. Fox replied that his only regret is that the plan failed. Because Fox refused to give up his identity, referring to himself as John Johnson, as well as the identities of his co-conspirators, James ordered he be tortured. After a day of torture, likely on the rack, he caved and, as we said at the top of the episode, revealed the names of those involved. The remaining conspirators were on the run. Catesby, the ringleader, rode on horseback claiming to his neighborhood that James had been blown up and it was time for the Catholics to rise up. 
Unfortunately, the army he was trying to recruit only amounted to about 40 people. And ironically, without the expertise of gunpowder that Fox had, he and his small army accidentally blew themselves up with the gunpowder they brought with them. They spread the now-soaked gunpowder in front of a fire to dry out, a spark from the fire landed on the gunpowder, and... you get the picture. Badly injured, Catesby told the remaining men, We mean here to die. On November 8th, the sheriff of Warwickshire showed up with an army of 200 men. Both sides engaged in a shootout. The weakened Catholic men put up a fight, but ultimately they didn't stand a chance against the king's men. Robert Catesby was shot and crawled to the nearest Catholic church. He was found dead, hugging a statue of the Virgin Mary. The remaining conspirators were arrested and sentenced to execution, along with Guy Fawkes. On January 31st, 1606, Guy Fawkes and his fellow conspirators were found guilty of treason. Their punishment was to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Essentially, they were dragged through the streets before they were publicly hanged, almost to the point of death. Emasculated, disemboweled, beheaded, and lastly, quartered, or chopped into four pieces. When they arrived at the gallows, James told the crowd that the traitors were intending to blow up all of England. Really? The whole isle? Sounds doable. Regardless of the ridiculousness of that statement, it made the audience mad. They booed the traitors. Fox jumped prematurely, breaking his own neck to avoid feeling the pain. The rest weren't so lucky. Many others associated with the plotters were either interrogated, searched, fined, stripped of titles, charged, or imprisoned in the Tower of London following the failed plot. One of those individuals was Father Henry Garnet, a Jesuit priest who ran an underground Catholic mission in London and was arrested as part of the conspiratorial group. However, he denied the charges and pleaded innocence. While there was very little evidence against him, the prosecutors made a huge deal about how he had written a book entitled A Treatise on Equivocation that defended, quote, the morality of giving misleading or ambiguous answers under oath, unquote. But Garnet was linked to Catesby and the families and friends Catesby and the other conspirators frequented. His absolution of Catesby's blame in the plot was seen as enough proof that the Jesuits were central to this plot, hence the alternative name, Jesuit Plot. It is widely accepted that the porter's mention of an equivocator in Macbeth is a reference to Garnet. If Fox and the gunpowder plot had succeeded, they would have blown up the Palace of Westminster and nearby buildings. It would have killed the king and other princes and princesses, as well as members of the Privy Council, Parliament, judges, and members of the aristocracy. The throne would have been left to James's young daughter, Princess Elizabeth. However, that did not happen. Instead, anti-Catholic rhetoric and legislation became stronger throughout England, and Catholic emancipation took about another 200 years. A Thanksgiving Act was passed in 1606, which required citizens to pray and give thanks to God that the terrorists did not succeed in killing the king. Oh, and inspired by the event, Shakespeare wrote a whole play warning of the dangers of regicide. Hello, Macbeth. If you are an American, you may know about the plot because it is the inspiration for the film V for Vendetta. Remember, remember the 5th of November. If you are a Brit, you know about the plot because Guy Fawkes Day, also called Bonfire Night, 
is celebrated every 5th of November, often with fireworks and traditionally with burning an effigy of Guy on a bonfire. You can also read the confessions of Guy Fawkes and Thomas Winters in The King's Book, a written official account of the conspiracy published in late November 1605. And that's the infamous failed gunpowder treason plot. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare Any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Richard III, Act One, Scene Four, said by First Murderer. What, art thou afraid?